0: Father, it truly is the the light of your splendor that hides you, and uh, it is hard for us to grasp your majesty and your power and all that you, who you are. Pray that as we look into your word today that you will um, speak to us, guide us, Give us wisdom for the coming days. And may we um, be committed to you in true worship. We bless your name, Father, and Lord Jesus, in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. You know, thinking about the... um, our Sunday school lesson the last couple weeks, and the woman at the well, and Jesus' answer to her to worship. You know, there's a new day coming, and true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. As we we're we sang two songs this morning that I specifically thought of that, but this last one, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Think of all the truth that is listed in these four verses. And that impacts. Our emotions it is and when we come at it from this angle looking at what's true about God um, then God uses that within our lives to encourage us and and also Christ is that water of life springing up within us but I had to think of that and then we sang verse or number two earlier um, come thou Almighty King help us thy name to sing. Second verse, come thou incarnate word. What's the incarnate word mean? Um, Come holy comforter. But a lot of truth. And we we can breeze right through that. And do I take with me that truth to work tomorrow when I get up out of bed tomorrow morning, and I head into my day, do I walk out what I have, what I say is true about God? What I say I believe? What is my, what are my mindsets? Notice that was one of the comments in in the quarterly that worshiping God in spirit involves our mindsets, our beliefs. What's, what, um, Sometimes those are kind of hidden from us. We don't realize what we think about God. Kind of the habits we've gotten into, but <clears throat> I want to go to Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 to 18 for a text today. And <clears throat> as I was studying this, I realized, you know what? I should have just went back to chapter one, verse one, and just started there. And, and um, Philippians, so he repeats so many of the of the and builds on the concepts. <clears throat> so we'll jump around in Philippians a little bit today. But Philippians two, starting at verse twelve: Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain." Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me." One thing that I did not really ponder before, but we're sitting here singing, and that phrase in verse 15, "...in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world." And I felt the weight of that. As we leave here, and as we go about our business, we are lights in this world. And that's, so, that's a sobering responsibility. <clears throat> and yet, you know, just a few verses before, it's God that works in us. He's not saying go and be lights, but he's saying you will be lights as we walk with him. We will be lights. But just the the weight of that, realizing we are lights as we go about in this world. That can be on the flip side of that. That's really encouraging too, right? It's really exciting. If we look back, um, in the, earlier in the chapter, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about how Christ humbled himself. Let this mind be in you. But that's kind of the, our ex- Christ is our example. And as we come into verse 12 here, it says, Wherefore? So looking at Christ, he's our example of humbling himself, becoming obedient to the Father. Then he says, Wherefore? my beloved. So looking back at that, I think that speaks to me that I'm to walk as Christ did, in obedience to the Father. So that's the beginning of this section, wherefore, my beloved. Think about, do we look at each other as the beloved of God? Do I look at myself as the beloved of God? Or am I always beating myself up for my failures? And I can't quite get there I had a young person tell me years ago that they felt like they were trying to get on the back of the pickup, and they're always falling off. They couldn't quite get there. They weren't quite good enough. They didn't fit in. So is that how I feel, that I'm not quite there? I'm not quite the beloved of God. I'm not quite part of that group. Or am I the beloved of God? Are you the beloved of God? I'd like to say that we are the beloved of God. God is looking at us and saying, these are my beloved children, I love you. And Paul says here to the Philippians, wherefore, my beloved, he's saying, I love you also. We really do benefit from the love back and forth with each other. What would it be like I've often had to think what it'd be like living on the lonely prairies of Wyoming without any friends. There's evidently some ranchers that have done it, right? And they've enjoyed doing it. I don't know, but we enjoy being a part of the beloved <clears throat> and the love that flows back and forth. Paul is saying, I think he's saying goodbye. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. I don't know if I'll be coming back, if I'll see you again. But keep walking. Keep following God. Keep pressing on. This statement here, I don't believe Paul is contradicting anything else that he said about us being saved by faith, by telling us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the idea of you have been saved Go walk it out now. Obey God. We can say, we are here in church today, but tomorrow morning when your feet hit the floor, follow God. Walk with God. Go work it out. You aren't saving yourself. You are saved. But you are walking with God. this fear and trembling I I don't believe it talks about it's talking about the fear of hell or damnation work out walk with God walk out your salvation with fear and trembling but it's it's the righteous and all filled reverence of God that every believer has I had to think so what would i say about god trying to how why do i revere god why am i full of all um, of him he's the controller the creator of the universe he is on the throne he is above all kingdoms he dwells in light his presence is beautiful he is perfect in justice and love there is no one else like him He holds all things together by the word of his power. He's awesome and he's all inspiring. That's the fear and trembling that is talking about here, I believe. Walk with God because of the beauty of it and his mighty power and his great love. For it is God which works in you both to will And to do of his good pleasure. God gives me the will to even walk with him. And he gives the power to do it. Back in Philippians 1 verse 6. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is at work in us. 2 Peter 1.3 says that he has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Another verse out of Philippians 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was, um, I mentioned it in Sunday school class, but I was going down through the Bible school application and filling it out to see what kind of a report it would send to me. So I was kind of working with it. And I got to the point where it says, are you born again? And there's a little box to check off. So I checked it. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. I am born again. That's wonderful news, right? That's exciting. And it's like the truth. I had to think of the woman at the well where Jesus said that worshipers now are going to worship in spirit and in truth. That truth affected my emotions. The truth of who God is that's the direction that our emotions are to be affected from because <clears throat> the question comes up and we discussed it a little bit too how do the emotions and the the big bands and the you know all this how does this fit into worship what's you know what is true worship our worship is impacted our emotions are impacted by the truth of who God is and what he has done for us <clears throat> If that is missing, then when I go out this door, I'm not going to end up walking it out. It's going to just be in this room where my emotions get whipped up. And then I walk out the door and it's like, well, what do I have? It brings up an interesting thing. If what I hear this morning What I read in God's Word, if I don't make the change that it requires of me, or if I haven't made the change that it requires of me, will it make a difference in my life two months from now? If I don't make any change? No, probably not. I'll be going on the same as I always have. But if I make the change, I don't have... It's like being honest. If you're always honest, you don't have to remember. Because... If you lie, then you have to remember what you told the person, right? But if you're always honest, if I'm always changing to be more like Christ, I know that in two months, what impacted me today will still be impacting me. So that's the importance of when God shows us something to change and to grasp onto that right away. For it is God which works in us. God is the one. Verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Heard someone say, well, I don't like that verse. They're murmuring and complaining about it, right? I don't like that verse. Don't complain about what God is doing. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There is a connection between my mindset of whether I am thankful or whether I am complaining and whether I am a blameless son of God. That's right in that same phrase there. That I may be blameless and harmless, a son of God. What is it saying if I go about my day whining and complaining, what is it saying about my belief about God? Is it saying anything? Is there any connection there? Either we don't believe God's in control or we don't believe that he's good. Right. Yeah, both of those. If I am not content with what God has for me today, that I'm really complaining about I don't have a good God. And I will not be a a light, that's what follows right after this, that we shine as lights in this crooked world. I won't shine as a light in this world if I'm whining and complaining. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Murmurings. What does that make you think of? What's a murmur? You need hearing aids to pick up on what they're saying, right? It's just kind of like you know. You're just kind of murmuring. There's like a secret displeasure. And people don't even know what you're talking about, but they can feel it. You know, it's just, oh, this is just coming out of this person's life. There's just a murmuring. There's a secret displeasure. I know there's something there, but I don't know what it is. We're not supposed to have any any part of that. <clears throat> in our lives we think it's towards circumstances and towards people but it's really towards God <clears throat> what was my last year like as we've closed out 2023 now there's been sickness there's been disappointments misunderstandings failure forgiveness loss what characterized my year what is my perspective on that year? <clears throat> what about Romans eight twenty eight, That for the believer, those who love God, God says, I work for the good in everything. I work for the good in everything. <clears throat> in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Am I giving thanks in everything? Or am I disputing, always questioning the truth, always arguing with my brother? Disputing kind of has that idea of arguing. This here reveals my beliefs about God. Do you know the difference between imply and infer? I got educated yesterday on it. (laughs) What's the difference between imply and infer? So I'll make a statement, and you tell me if you like it or not. So my complaining infers my beliefs about God. Is that a true statement? Or should I say my complaining implies my beliefs about God? You're at the same place I was. <laughs> so infer is, I had a little back and forth with someone about it. I said, okay, I'll lay it down. Um, I'll be more gracious than that. But for myself, I'll be tougher on myself. Infer means I can make, I can draw a conclusion. If I am complaining about my day. It says that I don't trust God, that he's good, or that he's in control. Or I can say, I'm complaining about my day. Or maybe I should say, okay, you're complaining about your day, and that implies that you don't trust God or think God's in control. Imply is that it leaves a little bit of room for an out that... There's something to look at there. Maybe there's a connection, but it's not guaranteed. Infer is guaranteeing the connection. This is this is this because of this. I believe for myself that's where I need to go. But when I'm looking at someone else's life, I better leave it at imply, I think. Because you know? there might be something going on in your life that I don't know about. There's some room for. The reason this became big for me is because someone was telling me that, what I was doing inferred something else. And I was like, no, well, wait a minute. You don't know what my ear was like. You know? You can imply, but you can't infer. And they wouldn't budge. And it impacted me to say, you know what, there are, we give ourselves room to hide behind bad attitudes and say, well, it just implies. No, I'm not, I'm not in the same camp as someone else that does that, right? so anyway just something to think about there the point being when it comes to my trust in god and i am whining and complaining let's be let's be hard on ourselves but not hard on other people you know it's that's um but honestly look at that why am i complaining about the weather why am I complaining about the food at this restaurant? Why am I, you know, complaining about the government? You know, we should get someone else in here, you know. Things would be better. Why am I doing all this stuff? Do all things, all things, without murmurings and disputings. Can you take out the trash? Sure. I'll go take out the trash. Hey, these dishes need washed. Sure do all things without murmurings and disputings <clears throat> then you may be blameless and harmless the sons of god <clears throat> am i characterized if i would ask my family am i characterized by grumbling and disputing or by rejoicing and joy what would they say about me if i asked them that not sure i want to ask them but that would be some good feedback, right? What does my family, what would they say, those closest to me, say characterize my, how I show up? <clears throat> An acquaintance wrote this, and I asked if I could share it this morning. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it, but it illustrates our mindset when we get up in the morning, how, how life can look different <clears throat> depending on our mindset. There's two paragraphs here first of kind of talking about it a little bit, and then it gets into illustration. But I think honestly, optimists are simply contented people. They have made peace with what is, and then when something better happens, it's a great joy, a fun surprise, a gift to gladden the heart. And they see those things all the time because they're literally do happen all the time, the good little things in life. Pessimists tend to have high expectations for what they consider acceptable, And then, honestly, life often doesn't measure up because life has a lot of hard things, imperfect things, and it makes them ticked off and grumpy and angry. To illustrate, I can get up in the morning, get dressed, find joy in all my dresses hanging nicely in my closet, rejoice that I can dress without my arm killing me, take joy in a good hot shower, be delighted when I hop out and see my husband made the bed, feel my heart leap for joy because all the children are under our roof again for a little while at least, Think about how neat it is that my little curd makes fixing a cup of coffee so incredibly convenient. Laugh at Rufus looking at me through the living room door and be grateful that all I have to do to get the kitchen cleaned up is stick the dishes on the counter into the dishwasher. Or I can get up in the morning. Think about how every joint I possess is whimpering. Fume because when I go into my closet, I see I missed a little box of donate stuff when I went into Goodwill yesterday. Feel annoyed because the hot water runs out seven minutes into what I wanted to be a ten-minute shower on account of my long-suff, showering daughters drawing heavily on the hot water supply. I see the bed made when I get out and think it was definitely his turn to make it, but he got the pillow shams crooked. (laughs) Take my first sip of coffee and note that it's not as good as when we ground our beans. See Rufus looking in the window at me and feel despairing of keeping that door free of his smeary nose prints. Identical morning... Identical circumstances, different attitudes, different baseline expectations. Like attracts like. Grumps find each other. It's validating. Gossips find each other. People disgruntled with their church find each other. Joyful people also find each other. Successful people find each other. I just thought that was so well written how the same morning, same day, we can look at it so differently. <clears throat> I read a little story this week, thinking about joyfulness. You know, joyful people also find each other. Joyfulness comes from being where God intended me to be. So if I'm going around looking for joyfulness, what, where does God want me to be? And then be there. Um, there's some children that rescued a bobcat a little bobcat kitten, and as they were raising it, it seemed like it was gonna get tamed for a little bit, but as it got older, they realized, this isn't gonna work long term. I'm gonna have to get rid of this bobcat, and they had to turn it back into the wild. The bobcat was no longer joyful in their house. The bobcat was made for the mountains. It was made for the trees and roaming. The bobcat was most joyful when it was where God intended it to be. That's the same for us. Where has God intended me to be? One of those places is to be not murmuring, but to be joyful. God has intended me to be content with where I'm at. Is there a situation in my life or a relationship where I need to stop looking at what is broken and instead look through it and see what God is doing. It's part of this thing of changing, shifting, from looking at things one way to looking at another, not murmuring and complaining, but start looking through the broken into what is God doing. Shift my focus from what is wrong to what does it look like to make healthy choices. Explore the solution. In our struggles, why is not a bad question, but it is the wrong question. Ask, what is God doing, and look for it. What is God doing, and look for that. Philippians 4.8 tells us to dwell on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and praiseworthy. That could fill up my whole day, right? Looking for the praiseworthy. I haven't, I cannot recite that whole list to you yet, but I can remember one word. I can look for what's praiseworthy. What is excellent? What is lovely? What is pure? Let's be looking for those things. Whatever you focus on and whatever you see, it feeds off of itself. These things, can get big in our minds when we are always looking at what's broken. And it just gets bigger and bigger, and then that's all that we see. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. What does it look like to shine as a light in the world? I looked up some lighthouse stories. I thought, you know, that's often used as a picture of Christ, as a picture of the believer in the world, is a lighthouse shining a light out across the dark waves. And we sing songs about that, too. And then the storm comes, and the sailors are rescued because they could see the light, right? That's what we are in the world, a light. Remember that song, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning? Christ is the big light, and we're the lower lights marking the shoreline. There's a story in Maine, sorry, Rhode Island, uh, the, probably the most famous lighthouse keeper. Her name was Ida Lewis. And her father was the, the light keeper on this lighthouse. And <clears throat> Rhode Island's so small. Is there only one lighthouse in Rhode Island? I don't know. <laughs> Her dad got a stroke and could not take care of the light. So at 16, she took over taking care of the light. And she had a sickly younger brother, too. And so her mom was busy taking care of her siblings. And her dad was incapacitated. He was paralyzed partially, I think. And so at 16, she took over the, the light. They lived out there on that island. And the only way to get there to the where they lived was by boat. There, it wasn't on a peninsula. It was, it was an island. And so one time, her mom was making supper at the window, and there's a storm outside just blowing like crazy. And all of a sudden, she sees a sailboat flipped over. And she hollers for Ida. And she doesn't even take time to put on her shoes. She just runs down to the shoreline, hops in her boat, pushes out to sea. And by that time, one of the sailors had drowned because he got so cold he couldn't move. He couldn't hang on anymore. So one of them had slipped under the water already, but she was able to save the, the other two. And they said in her lifetime, she ended up spending her life living on that island, taking care of the lighthouse till she was 69, 65 or 69. She was in her 60s when she passed away then. And they estimate that she saved 39 lives um, or more. They don't know for sure because she did not keep track. It's just Stories that got passed around among the townspeople, they kind of kept track. You know, people got back and said, Well, Ida saved me off the, you know, last night or whatever. Um, But that is a picture of us as being lights in the world. We're going to see people in difficulty. And why run barefoot and push off into the storm? To go save a life that's that's the picture of us I believe shining as lights in the world rescuing people <clears throat> verse 16 holding forth the word of life and I had to think you know here it makes it sound like I'm holding out God's word right and I think that's part of it this word its use In the New Testament, (coughs) is more the idea of taking heed and holding on to. Holding on to the word of life. Don't let go what we know, what God has shown us, what God has spoken to us. Hold on. Don't let it go. Take heed to it. Believe it. Observe it. This is more than just a casual reading. You know, there's, <clears throat> every morning, did I read God's word today? Check the box off. Yeah, I did. But when I walk out the door, do I take it with me? Do I walk it out? Again, we see that concept here in, the, in verse 12, walking out our own salvation. And here again, holding forth the word of life, taking heed to it, walking it out, <clears throat> Don't let it go. It is of great value that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. What is the day of Christ? Judgment is coming. Christ is returning. So Paul's saying, I'm going to hold on to God's word. I'm going to go live it out so that when Christ returns, I may rejoice that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. I can labor in vain. If my life is not based on the word of God, <clears throat> we can labor for all kinds of things. Holding on to the word of God, I read a story of a weasel. They're just, what do they weigh, about a pound? I forget what a weasel weighs, but they're just really small. But he came back to his den, and there was a snake there looking for the weasel's um, I don't know what they call them, kits, whatever. And the weasel was bringing food back, was bringing a mouse back to feed to his little ones. And he dropped that and attacked attacked the snake and got the snake behind the head and ended up killing the snake. And it was a big snake. But the weasel would not let go. He was determined to defend, to hang on. In the process, the snake wrapped itself around the weasel and broke some bones and it punctured some interior organs and and the weasel limped away and died then so the snake was dead and the weasel died is that how tenacious i am at holding on to god's word holding on don't let go paul said that is what is necessary so that we have not run in vain Be like the weasel. In Acts 6 and 7, we see the early church going through a great struggle. And Stephen is the first martyr. And Paul, Saul, is persecuting the church and dragging people off to prison and killing people. And so you got this big struggle. Am I just going to run when that happens? Turn and run? Stephen preached. From the beginning of the gospel all the way up to their present time. Beautiful message there. He did not run from the struggle, but he faced it. And in Acts 8, the very next verse, the Christians were scattered everywhere. And what does it say they did? They went everywhere preaching the word. That didn't shut them down, did it? So am I going to allow the struggles in life to shut me down? Or am i going to keep pressing keep sinking my teeth into the neck of that snake that wants to kill me <clears throat> in acts chapter 7 toward the end of the chapter 46 um, in his message stephen says i think this is yeah the end of his message who found favor Talking about David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Where, is, where does God dwell? God doesn't dwell in temples anymore, does he? Made with hands. God dwells in this temple. Am I a dwelling place of God? Will I hold on? Avoiding pain and discomfort also avoids the reward. In verse 17, Paul goes on to say, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. So he said, even if I'm poured out as an offering, I'll keep pressing on. I'm not going to back off just because there's pain involved. There's sacrifice involved. The cecropia moth is in a little, um, the worm goes in, you know, builds a cocoon, and then the moth has to break out of that. And people have already snipped that to make it easier because the moth struggles for a very long time to get out. And they're like, well, we're gonna help it. And so they snip the cocoon and the moth comes out, but it never flies. Because in that struggle, and as its muscles are working and it's trying to get out of this cocoon, blood is forced into its wings and it develops the wings and it develops the muscles. And so in our struggle, We often want to save each other from struggle. And we want to avoid struggle for ourselves. But in that struggle, we are being shaped into the image of Christ. So that as we go forth, we won't be the same as what we were. The Cecropia moth is the largest moth in the US, I think, what, five inches its wingspan can be. And it's in the, uh, it produces silk. And it was like forty-eight hundred years ago, I think. The Chinese um, made, were making silk from these moths, and they protected that. They didn't want that moth to be taken to other countries, so other people could use it. You know, they. But it got smuggled out. Um, they. It was under penalty of death. If you took the eggs or took the moth to another country, you were worthy of death. They protected that. That silk producing, that was their money, that was their industry. But that's this moth. We have them here in North America now. <clears throat> but the pressure of it breaking out of that cocoon um, is what prepares it for a, a life of being a moth and that can fly and not be a, a worm anymore. Did God make the moth that way? He did did god give me everything i need and make me so that struggle produces growth and new life he did this is part of just remember again those verses that christ will finish what he started in in me and in us and he has given me all that i need for life and godliness this thing that god has given me the story is told this happened many times over but in the early 1900s in the south black people were given land as part of reparations you know for being slaves and and this there was an 11 year old girl who was given a little black girl who was given 160 acres of land and her dad had to pay 30 dollars a year to keep that in annual pro annual property tax and he didn't think it was worth paying so he wanted to sell the land because most of this land was inferior it was rocky it was not good for farming and oh we'll give it to the black people you know it's kind of that attitude and so he wanted to sell it he was not allowed to sell it so they ended up keeping it (coughs) and and a man uh, oil driller came in and struck oil on that 160 acres. So what they thought was worthless, I think in 19, 19, soon after it was they were pumping 2,500 barrels a day off of that um, well, and at one point, I mean it was in the news and all kinds of people were trying to take advantage of them. It was. Um, this, when she was still a teenager, she was, they said she was worth $4 million, which today that's a lot, but back then that was uh, <laughs> even astronomically more than what it would be today. So what I am given by God, do I look on it as a worthless, rocky piece of land? Or do I treasure what I've been given and say, there's gold here somewhere maybe I haven't seen it yet maybe I don't feel like paying the taxes on it every year but there's value here don't throw away what God has the place where God has you Um, be content the drink offering in the Old Testament I think Paul is referencing that here Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. In the Old Testament, my understanding is that the drink offering was poured out. Nobody drank it. God didn't drink it. The people didn't drink it. Doesn't that kind of seem like a waste? It was just poured over the offering. It ran down over the rocks, into the ground. Today... In the New Covenant, that was the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, in our communion with Christ, one of the symbols is drinking the cup. (coughs) In the Old Testament, they had to pour it out. In the New Testament, we get to drink it with Christ. And there is a joy and a rejoicing back and forth in that communion with Christ. Paul is saying, even if things don't turn out as I would like, or even if I need to lay down my life for you all, or I am poured out as an offering. I joy and rejoice because I know that there's a communion with Christ and there's a a benefit, a mutual benefit together. God instituted the drink offering when the Israelites were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. They had failed. They had failed to enter in. Because he said, the giants are too big. Yeah, there's good stuff there. But I can't overcome the giants. There's things in my life that are too big. And so I'm just going to go wander in the wilderness for 40 years? That's what the Israelites did. They said, I can't overcome this thing, whatever it is. What is that in your life that you say, I cannot overcome this? God is saying, enter in. I'll be with you. Right? We just read those verses. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God said, do this, pour out the wine as a drink offering to me as a promise of eventual victory and a sign of my faithfulness to you. Isn't that what communion with Christ is? As we die and we take the cup, <clears throat> it's a sign of victory over death, and of God's dwelling with his people. I was like, wow, that's a good passage to remember the next time we have communion together. We get to drink the cup in communion with God. And Paul says that's a joy, even if it means being poured out. Why look at the obstacle or the provision? Think about going into the land. When I look at the obstacle, they said they're they're like the children of Anak, which that must have been some big guys. Um, They said, yeah. They brought back a bunch of grapes. They cut off one cluster, and two men had to carry it on a pole between their shoulders. The land is good. Walking with God is good. Will I raise the white flag of surrender? Will I worship in spirit and in truth? Romans 12.1 says that my spiritual act of worship is to yield my life a living sacrifice. That when I throw the covers off in the morning and put my feet on the floor and I say, God, here I am. I'm yours again today. That is spiritual worship. And the devil says that, it, this ain't good, he's up again. The weakest believer in Christ is stronger than the devil. And when our feet hit the floor and we're a living sacrifice before the Lord, that puts, he's worried about that. <clears throat> in summary, beloved. Walk out your salvation that God is working in you. Don't doubt God, but be content. You will be bright lights in a dark world. Don't just read God's word, but work it out. Judgment is coming. Will my labor have been in vain? If it doesn't go as I think, I will still commune with Christ and you, rejoicing.